Section one of Nature Near Home and Other Papers by John Burroughs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Edith Fern. Nature Near Home and Other Papers by John Burroughs. Section one Nature Lore. Emerson in his journal says, All facts in nature interest us because they are deep and not accidental. Facts of nature are undoubtedly of interest to most persons, though whether or not Emerson gives a true reason may be questioned. I would sooner venture the explanation that it is because nature is a sort of outlying province of ourselves. We feel a kinship with her works, and in bird and beast, in tree and flower, we behold the workings of the same life principle that has brought us where we are and relates us to all living things. Explain the matter as we may, the facts and doings of nature interest us, and our interest is bound to grow as we enlarge our acquaintance with them, which is about like saying that our interest keeps pace with our interest. But so it is. Water does not taste good to us until we are thirsty. Before we ask questions, we must have questions to ask, and before we have questions to ask, we must feel an awakened interest or curiosity. Action and reaction go hand in hand. Interest begets interest. Knowledge breeds knowledge. Once started in pursuit of nature lore, we are pretty sure to keep on. When people ask me, how shall we teach our children to love nature? I reply, do not try to teach them at all. Just turn them loose in the country and trust to luck. It is time enough to answer children's questions when they are interested enough to ask them. Knowledge without love does not stick, but if love comes first, knowledge is pretty sure to follow. I do not know how I first got my own love for nature, but I suppose it was because I was born and passed my youth on the farm, and reacted spontaneously to the natural objects about me. I felt a certain privacy and kinship with the woods and fields and streams, long before the naturalist awoke to self-consciousness within me. A feeling of companionship with nature came long prior to any conscious desire for accurate and specific knowledge about her works. I loved the flowers and the wild creatures, as most healthy children do, long before I knew there was such a study as botany or natural history. And when I take a walk now, thoughts of natural history play only a secondary part. I suspect it is more to bathe the spirit in natural influences than to store the mind with natural facts. I think I know what Emerson means when he says elsewhere in his journal that a walk in the woods is one of the secrets for dodging old age. I understand what the poet meant when he sang, Sweet is the lore which nature brings. Nature lore, that is it. Not so much a notebook full of notes of birds and trees and flowers, as a heart warmed and refreshed by sympathetic intercourse and contact with these primal forces. When the press of one's foot to the earth springs a hundred affections, as Whitman says, then one gets something more precious than exact science. Nature lore is a mixture of love and knowledge, and it comes more by way of the heart than of the head. We absorb it with the air we breathe. It awaits us at the side of the spring when we stoop to drink. It drops upon us from the trees beneath which we fondly linger. It is written large on the rocks and ledges, whereas boys we prowled about on Sundays, putting our hands in the niches or on the rocky shelves older than Thebes or Karnak, touching carefully the Phoebe's mossy nest with its pearl-white eggs, or noting the spore of coon or fox, or coming face to face with the oldest inhabitant of the region, who saw the foundations of the hills laid and the valleys scooped out. Geologic time, whose tint is the gray overhanging rocks. Many a walk I take in the fields and woods when I gather no new facts and make no new observations, and yet I feel enriched. 
I have been for an hour or more on intimate terms with trees and rocks and grass and birds, and with nature's primal sanities. The fragrance of the wild things lingers about my mind for days. Yet the close observation of nature, the training of the eye and mind to read her signals, to penetrate her screens, to disentangle her skeins, to catch her significant facts, add greatly to the pleasure of a walk and to life in the country. Natural history is on the wing, and all about us on the foot. It hides in holes, it perches on trees, it runs to cover under the stones and into the stone walls. It soars, it sings, it drums, it calls by day. It barks and prowls and hoots by night. It eats your fruit, it plunders your garden, it raids your hen-roost, and maybe disturbs your midnight slumbers. At Woodchuck Lodge the woodchucks eat up my peas and melons and dig under the foundations of my house. The coons come down off the mountain for sweet apples in my orchard. I surprise the foxes among the cows on my early morning walks, where I am awakened in the dawn by the hue and cry of the crows over a fox passing near, a little late in getting back to the cover of the woods. All such things add interest to country life. No wild creature comes amiss, even though it robs your hen-roost. I sometimes grow tender toward the woodchuck, even though he raids my garden. He is such a characteristic bit of wild nature, creeping about the fields or sitting upon his haunches to see if danger is near. He is of the earth, earthy, its true offspring, steeped in its savors, hugging it close, harmonizing with its soil and rocks, almost as liquid as its fountains and as perennial as its grass. I even get reconciled to the unsavory but gentle-mannered skunk. He does not disturb me if I do not disturb him, and if he chances to get into a trap which I have set for some other animal, his composure is great, and he looks the injured innocent that he is. Only I must keep my eye upon that tail when it starts to rise over his back. There is a masked battery there, the noiseless shot of which is usually well aimed, and is pretty sure to rout the foe whether it hit the mark or not. Last summer the morning light revealed one held by the leg in a steel trap, which I had set for rats that were helping themselves too freely to my roasting ears. How sorry and deprecatory he looked as I approached, slowly straining to pull away from the cruel trap, and turning upon me a half-appealing, half-reproachful look. By imitating his slow, gentle manners, I lifted him and the trap to the mouth of a woodchuck hole, into which he quickly crept, leaving his trap-held foot outside. To release him then was an easy matter. The skunk is a night prowler, and subsists mainly on insects and small rodents, but I would not insure the bird's eggs or the young birds that happen to be in his path, though Mr. Seaton says his tame skunks do not know how to deal with hen's eggs. There is no prettier bit of natural history upon four legs than the red fox, especially when you surprise him in your morning walk, or he surprises you in his. He too is a night prowler, but often he does not get home till after sun-up. Early one October morning, as I stood in the road looking out over the landscape, a belated fox jumped over the wall a few yards from me, and loped unconcernedly along parallel with the road, then turned and scaled the fence and crossed the road, and went bounding up the hill toward the wood with a grace and ease impossible to describe. I suppose it was his massive tail held level with his body that helped give the idea of buoyancy. There was no apparent effort as when the farm dog climbs the hill, but the ease and lightness that goes with floating and winged things. It was indeed a pleasing spectacle, such as I had not seen for many years. This winter the fox hunter with his hound will be trailing him from mountain to mountain or from valley to valley, and he will drift along over the snow, pausing now and then to harken back along his trail, and reluctantly expose himself to the eye of day in the broad open spaces. Unless the day is wet and his tail and fur get draggled, 
he will run from sun to sun without much apparent fatigue but if his burden gets too great he knows of holes in the rocks where he can take refuge any device that a plant or an animal has for getting on in the world interests us it brings the lower orders nearer to us we have our own devices and makeshifts and we like to know how it is with our near or distant kin among the humbler orders they are ourselves not yet come to consciousness and to the elective franchise when the burr of the burdock reaching forth its arms for such a chance seizes onto your coat tail take your pocket glass and examine the minute hooks that tip the ends of the seed scales they fish for you and your dog and sheep and cow and they catch you not with one hook but with twenty or fifty all at the same time but in this case it is not the fish that is caught but the fisherman the plan of this fisherman is to go right along with his captor the farther the better and plant his progeny in a new territory he lets go his hold upon the parent plant at a mere touch but the touch gives him all the hold he wants the hooks are fine and hard like minute sharp horns not too much bent that would defeat the end and perfectly smooth and finished instead of hooks the weed called bidens has the teeth or prongs armed with barbs like a fish hook many of them on each prong they are quite as sure a trap as the hooks of the burdock nature never fails to perfect her device natural selection attends to that her traps her wings her springs her balloons always work the wings of the maple keys the ash the linden are all different but they all work nature seems partial to the burdock what extra pains she seems to have taken to perpetuate this worse than useless plant so far as i know nothing wants it or profits by it though i have heard that the petioles when cooked suggest salsify it is an ishmaelite among plants every man's hand is against it and nearly every animal has reason to detest it against their wheels they are engaged in sowing its seeds the other day i found some burrs matted on the tail of a woodchuck birds have been found trapped by its hooks apparently the only domestic animal that it does not seize hold of is the pig the stiff smooth bristles of the pig afford it a scanty hold it possesses more original sin than any other plant i know how it drives its roots into the ground defying your spading fork how it seems to drive its burrs into your garments or into the hair of animals refusing to let go till it is fairly torn in pieces see the dog biting them out of his hair with a kind of contemptuous fury if you try to help him you must proceed very carefully and deliberately or he will confound you with the burdock and threaten the hand that seeks to aid him the burdock is vicious to the last the old burr clings with the same dogged determination as the new as a noxious weed it is a great success discourage it by cutting it down you cannot by hook or by crook it is bound to persist its juice is bitter and its fibre coarse what a pity that so much native grit and enterprise cannot be turned to some good account the burrs are detached from the parent stem almost as easily as are the quills from the porcupine even while it is yet in bloom the hooks will seize your coat-tails and the burr let go its hold upon the stalk the hooks are not attached to the separate seeds but are for the burrs as a whole. I know of no plant so difficult to prevent seeding. Cut it down in July, and in August it has new shoots loaded with burrs. Cut these off, and in late September or early October it will evolve burrs directly from the stub of the old stalk, often in clusters and bunches, without a leaf to mother them. The plant, if unhindered, grows three or four feet high and bears about five hundred burrs, which usually have twelve seeds each, or six thousand seeds to the plant. Before the seeds are ripe, they are nearly the size and color of rye or peeled oats. Later they shrink and turn dark. So far as I know, nothing feeds upon them, save the larvae of some insect. 
I have examined many birds in October and found a small white grub and a single seed in each of them. Those good people who fancy that everything was made for some special service to man would have trouble, I think, to find the uses of the burdock. The advantage of that array of eager hooks to the burdock, there are more than two hundred of them on each burr, seems obvious. And yet here is the yellow dock alongside of it, a relative of our buckwheat that has no hooks or other devices that I can discover for scattering its seed, and yet it appears to compete successfully with its more lusty neighbor. One is about as abundant and troublesome to the gardener as the other. The seeds of the yellow dock are like small, brown, polished buckwheat. I have never seen birds or squirrels eat them, and what secret way they have of keeping up with the burdocks I do not know. The burdock plants itself deeper in the ground, and defies your spading fork the more successfully. I have always been curious to know why the birch is the only one among our many forest trees that seems to have an ambition to plant itself upon a rock. Other trees do so occasionally, but in the woods I am familiar with I see ten birches upon rocks to one of any other tree. They sit down upon the rock as if it were a chair, and run their big roots off into the ground, apparently entirely at home. How in the first place they get enough foothold in the thin coat of leaf mold that covers the rocks to develop their roots, and send them across the barren places, and down into the soil is a puzzle. I have seen a small birch sapling that had attained a foothold in a niche on the side of a cliff, send one large root diagonally down across the face of the bare rock two or more yards to the ground, where it took hold and saved the situation. It was like a party going out from a starving camp for relief. To equip and provision the party required some resources. Yes, you may say, and to know where to send it required some wit. But the roots of a tree always tend downward as the branches go upward. We are at the end of our tether when we say that such is the rule of nature. The winged seeds always find their proper habitat, as if they had eyes to see the way. The seeds of the cattail flag find the ditches and marshes as unerringly as if they were convoyed. But this intelligence or self-direction is only apparent. The wind carries the seeds in all directions, and they fall everywhere, just as it happens, on the hills as well as in the ditches, but only in the latter do they take root and flourish. Nature often resorts to this wholesale method. In scattering pollen and germs by the aid of the wind, this is her method. Cover all the ground, and you will be sure to hit your mark night or day. After one or more windy days in November, I am sure to find huddled in the recess of my kitchen door the branching heads of a certain species of wild grass that grows somewhere on the hills west of me. These heads find their ways across fields and highways, over fences, past tree and bushy barriers, down my steps, into the stormhouse, and lie there, waiting on the door-sill like things of life, waiting to get in the house. Not one season alone, but every season, they come as punctually as the assessor. The watchful broom routs them, but the next day or the next week, there they are again, and now and then one actually gets into the kitchen, slipping in between your feet as you open the door. They bring word from over the hills, and the word is, Sooner or later nature hits her mark, hits all marks, because her aim is broadcast and her efforts ceaseless. The wind finds every crack and corner. We started on our journey not for your door, but for any door, all doors, any shelter, where we could be at rest. And here we are. The purple loose strife travels from marsh to marsh in the Hudson River Valley, and as its seeds are not winged, one may wonder how it gets about so easily. It travels by the aid of wings, but not of its own. Darwin discovered that the seeds of marsh plants are often carried in the mud on the feet of marsh birds. Years ago the loose strife was in a large marsh six miles south of me. 
a few years later a few plants appeared in a pond near me and now this and nearby ponds and marshes are lakes of royal purple in august the loose strife in late summer makes such a grand showing with its vast armies of tall stately plants that one welcomes it in our unsightly marshes only the present season did i observe a peculiar feature of our wild clematis that a little close attention might have shown me at any time its conspicuous appearance in september after its flowers have faded which has earned for it the name of old man's beard is owing to the fact that its seeds have long feathered tails to aid in their dissemination it is the only seed i know of that the wind carries by the tail for some obscure reason it does not carry it very far or at least does not plant it very successfully as the clematis is rare with me instead of being sown broadcast over the hills and along the fences it appears sparsely at wide intervals it is such a beautiful vine both in flowering time and seeding time that one wishes it were more common the plants that travel by runners above or below ground are many the plants that travel by walking are few i recall only the walking fern which now seems to have walked away from my neighborhood and the black raspberry both are slow travelers but they do reach out and take steps some trees can fight a much more successful battle against browsing animals than can others the apple and the red thorn are notable examples trees like the linden which the cattle freely crop are easy victims they put up no kind of fight they sprout freely but they make no headway their new shoots are swept off every summer and there the low stool of the tree remains the beech does better amid grazing cattle but i doubt if it ever wins the fight but the apple and the thorn though the struggle is a long and hard one are sure to win in the end after many years one central shoot gets a start from the top of the thorny mound of cropped twigs makes rapid strides upward and in due season stands there the perfected tree it will now bear fruit for the short-sighted grazers that sought to destroy it our belief in the uniformity of nature or in the unchangeableness of natural law is fundamental we act upon it every hour of our lives our bodies and minds are built upon that plan yet in detail and within narrow limits nature is unequal capricious incalculable can the farmer always foretell his crops or forecast a wet season or dry the problem is too complex or our wits are too shallow last season the hay crop over a large part of the country broke the record the meadows everywhere and without any very obvious reason doubled their yield the farmers barns from pennsylvania to maine were bursting with plenty and at the end of haying a row of stacks encompassed or flanked most of them the trees all seemed to have had a superabundance of leaves on my own grounds we raked up and put under cover for stable use nearly double the usual quantity from the same number of trees one important factor in this meadow and pasture and tree fertility was probably the continued deep snows of last winter about one hundred inches fell in the hudson valley and two feet at one fall in december snow warms and fertilizes how it warmed up and quickened the mice beneath it the meadows yielded double their usual number of meadow mice never have i seen in the spring evidence of such a crop over a wide area wherever i looked in meadow bottoms or grassy hillsides or shaven lawns there were the runways the grassy nests the camping grounds of this vast army of meadow mice they had evidently had a long picnic they had had the world under their all to themselves there had been nothing there to molest or to make them afraid no fox no cat no owl no weasel no mink and they had reveled in their freedom and security one could read it all in the record upon the ground their straw villages their round tunnels and sunken runways through the grass and the marks and refuse everywhere as of temporary social and holiday gatherings 
vast numbers of bushes and small trees especially the apple order were stripped of their bark to a height of two or more feet from the ground i even saw a thicket of small young locusts with stems as white as bleached cornstalks spring quickly put an end to these winter festivities of the mice and compelled them to take to their old retreats and darken lives under the ground evidently the old mother in this part of the country at least took care of her children last winter from grass and tree roots to mice and insects in her subtler physical forces nature often seems capricious and lawless probably on account of our limited vision we see the lightning cleave the air in one blinding flash from the clouds to the earth often shattering a tree or a house on its way down hence it is always a surprise to see the evidence that the thunderbolt strikes upward as well as downward during an electrical storm one summer night an enormous charge of electricity came up out of the earth under a maple tree at the foot of the hill below my study scattering the sod the roots and some small bushes like an explosion of powder or dynamite then it rooted around on the ground like a pig devouring or annihilating the turf making a wide ragged zigzag trench seven or eight feet long down the hill in the ground when it dived beneath the wagon track five or six feet wide bursting out here and there on the surface then escaped out of the bank made by the plough on the edge of the vineyard. Here it seems to have leaped to the wire trellis of the grapevines, running along it northward, scorching the leaves here and there, and finally vented its fury on a bird-box that was fastened to a post at the end of the row. It completely demolished the box, going a foot or more out of its way to do so. The box was not occupied, so there was not the anticlimax of a bolt of jove slaughtering house-wrens or bluebirds. Maybe it was the nails that threw the charge to the box but why it was rooting around down the hill when it came out of the ground instead of leaping upward is a puzzle it acted like some blind crazy material body that did not know where to go a cannon shot would have made a much smoother trench its course on the ground was about twelve or fourteen feet half above and half below ground and its leap in the air about six feet strange that a thing of such incredible speed and power should yet have time to loiter about and do such fool stunts this space annihilator left a trail like a slow plodding thing it burrowed like a mole it delved like a plough it leaped and ran like a squirrel and it struck like a hammer a spectator would have been aware only of a blinding blaze of fire there on the edge of the vineyard and heard a crash that would have stunned him but probably could not have told whether the bolt came upward or downward lightning is much quicker than our special senses on another occasion beside my path through the woods to slab sides I saw where a bolt had come up out of a chipmunk's hole at the root of a tree, scattered the leaves and leaf mold about, and apparently disappeared in the air. The lightning seems to have its favorite victims among the trees. I have never known it to strike a beech tree. Hemlocks and pines are its favorites in my woods. In other regions, the oak and the ash receive its attention. An oak on my father's farm was struck twice in the course of many years, the last bolt proving fatal. The hard, or sugar maple, is frequently struck, but only in one instance have I known the tree to be injured. In this case a huge tree was simply demolished. Usually the bolt comes down on the outside of the tree, making a mark as if a knife had clipped off the outer surfaces of the bark, revealing the reddish-yellow interior. In several cases I have seen this effect, but a few summers ago an unusually large and solid sugar maple in my neighbor's woods received a charge that simply reduced it to stovewood. Such a scene of utter destruction I have never before witnessed in the woods. The tree was blown to pieces as if it had been filled with dynamite. Over a radius of fifty or more feet the fragments of the huge trunk lay scattered. It was as if the bolt, baffled so long by the rough coat of mail of the maple, had at last penetrated it and had taken full satisfaction. The explosive force probably came from the instantaneous vaporization of the sap of the tree by the bolt. 
Some friends of mine were inoculated with curiosity about insects by watching the transformation of the larvae of one of the swallow-tailed butterflies, probably the Papilio austerias. As I was walking on their porch one morning in early April, I chanced to see a black and green caterpillar about two inches long posed in a meditative attitude upon the side of the house, a foot or more above the floor. The latter half of its body was attached to the board wall, and the fore part curved up from it with bowed head. The creature was motionless and apparently absorbed in deep meditation. I stooped down and examined it more closely. I saw that it was on the eve of a great change. The surface of the board immediately under the forward part of the body had been silvered over with a very fine silken web that was almost like a wash rather than something woven. Anchored to this on both sides, as if grown out of the web, ran a very fine thread or cord up over the caterpillar's back, which served to hold it in place. It could lean against the thread as a sailor leans against a rope thrown around him and tied to the mast. With bowed head the future butterfly hung there, and with bowed head I waited and watched. Presently convulsive movements began to transverse its body. Through segment after segment a wave of effort seemed to pass. It was the beginning of the travail pains of transformation. Then, in a twinkling, a slight rent appeared in the skin on the curve of the back, revealing the new, light green surface underneath. The first glimpse of the chrysalis. The butterfly was being born. Slowly, as the labor continued, the split in the skin extended down the back and over toward the head, till the outlines of the chrysalis became plainly visible. I was witnessing that marvelous transformation in nature of a worm into a creature of a much higher and more attractive order. The worm mask was being stripped off and an embryo butterfly revealed to view. In a few minutes the head and forward part of the body were free, and the latter half was fast becoming so. The fine silken cord over the back served its purpose well, holding the creature in place while it literally wriggled out of its skin, and when this feat was accomplished, holding it in position for its long winter sleep. The skin behaved as if it were an interested party in the enterprise. Much better, I am sure, than one's garments would if one were to try to wriggle out of them without using one's limbs. It folded back, it drew together, it finally became a little pellet or pack of cast-off linen that clung to the tail end of the chrysalis. To effect the final detachment and not lose the grip which this end seemed to have on the board beneath it required a good deal of struggling, probably a full minute of convulsive effort before the little bundle of cast-off habiliments let go and dropped, a dark pellet the size of a small pea. Then our insect was at rest, and seemed slowly to contract and stiffen. It had woven itself the silken loop to hold it to its support, and it had struggled out of its old skin on its own initiative, or without being mothered or helped, as so many newborn creatures are. I did not have the pleasure of seeing it spin the cord over the back, which plays an important part in the process of transformation, mechanical part though it be, but a few days later, through the patient and clear-seeing eyes of my friend Miss Grace Humphrey, I witnessed this operation also. She wrote, The day after you left we found another caterpillar a few feet away from yours. It had already made its saddle cord and shed its silken robe and we found it, but we watched it change from gray-green to not greenish-brown at all, but a grayness matching the concrete of the house. For it was higher up than yours, on the ledge below the window, hanging from the ledge against the plaster wall. Its cord, too, apparently grew thicker just at the ends, showing up more plainly for a bit. Then, like yours, it dried up and more perfectly matched its background, and neither of them did the cord continue to look thicker. The same day I found a third caterpillar under the pear tree, the very same kind, black with a wide green stripe marking off each segment, and the rows of yellow buttons. I carried it on a leaf up to the porch, where we put it under a glass bowl. 
but of course it thought that an unfavorable place for housing itself for the winter, and it wouldn't start, though we kept it there two days. At noon, when freed, it climbed up the wall of the house, rather near yours, so they were photographed together, and we held our breaths to see if it would start building operations there. But no. Up the window ledge it wormed its way, and thence up and up by the side of the window, leaving all the way along a silky thread, and constantly going back and forth with its head. Mr. R. knocked it down once to keep it in the sunlight in order to photograph it, and it immediately climbed up to the same spot, all the time leaving the white silk thread. It kept climbing up and up till I had to get on a chair to see it, and once I lost my balance and jumped down, drawing it so that I knocked it to the floor. But up it got, and climbed up, and spent the rest of the afternoon alternately wriggling about to find just the right place, and making a silken background in one spot. The next day it was still on the window ledge. About eleven o'clock it disappeared, and I hunted and hunted before I found it on the other side of the porch railing. It was busily making its network, but it made far less than either of the others, and most of the time it was staying quite still. The following day, about noon, it made its cord, anchoring that at one end, then at the other, and going back and forth to strengthen it. When the cord was ready, it put its head through, the cord was made ahead of it, and wriggled itself into the cord. It wriggled fully as hard as when yours got itself out of its striped cover. So slowly and carefully it made its way into place, being most careful not to strain the cord. We watched breathlessly. It pushed itself so far through that it was about half and half, and then it had to wriggle backward until its head and a third of its body was through, and two-thirds not through, and wriggling back took far greater care than forward. It stayed just that way, all huddled up for nearly four days, when about eight o'clock in the morning it split and divested itself of its robe. It is matching the brown woodwork like yours, and there all three are. The incomparable French natural historian and felicitous writer, Henri Fabre, has witnessed what I never have. He has seen the caterpillar build its case or cocoon. In the instance which he describes it was the small grub of one of the psyches. The first thing the creature did was to collect bits of felt or pith from the cast-off garment of its mother. These it tied together with the thread of its own silk, forming a band or girdle, which it put around its own body, uniting the ends. This ring was the start and foundation of the sack in which it was to encase itself. The band was placed well forward, so that the insect could reach its edge by bending its head up and down and around in all directions. It then proceeded to widen the girdle by attaching particles of down to its edges. As the garment grew towards its head, the weaver crept forward in it, thus causing it to cover more and more of its body, till in a few hours it covered all of it, and the sack was complete, a very simple process, and, it would seem, the only possible one. The head, with the flexible neck, which allowed it to swing through the circle, was the loom that did the weaving, the thread issuing from the spinneret on the lip. Did the silk issue from the other end of the body, as we are likely to think it does, the feat would be impossible. I suppose a woman might knit herself into a sweater in the same way, by holding the ball of yarn in her bosom, and turning the web around, and pulling it down instead of turning her body, all but her arms. Here she would be balked. To understand how a grub weaves itself a close-fitting garment, closed at both ends, from its own hair, or by what sleight of hand it attaches its cocoon to the end of a branch, I suppose one would need to witness the process. In October these preparations and transformations in the insect world are taking place all about us, and we regard them not. The caterpillars are getting ready for a sleep, out of which they awaken in the spring totally different creatures. They tuck themselves away under stones or into crevices. They hang themselves on bushes. They roll themselves up in dry leaves 
and brave the cold of winter in tough garments woolly or silky of their own weaving some of them as certain of the large moths do what seems like an impossible stunt they shut themselves up inside a tough case or receptacle and attach it by a long strong bit of homemade tape to the end of a twig so that it swings freely in the wind i have seen the downy woodpecker trying to break into one of these sealed up living tombs without avail its free pendant position allows it to yield to the strokes of the bird and all efforts to penetrate the case are in vain how the big clumsy worm without help or hands wove itself into this bird-proof case and hung itself up at the end of a limb would be a problem worth solving of course it had its material all within its own body so is not encumbered with outside tools or refractory matter it was the result of a mechanical and a vital process combined the creature knew how to use the means which nature had given it for the purpose some of the caterpillars weave the chrysalis case out of the hairs and wool of their summer coats others out of silk developed from within on october mornings i have had great pleasure in turning over the stones by the roadside and lifting up those on the tops of the stone walls and noting the insect life preparing its winter quarters under them the caterpillars and spiders are busy one could gather enough of the white fine silk from spider tents and cocoons to make a rope big enough to hang himself with the jumping spider may be found in his closely woven tent look at his head through a pocket glass and he looks like a miniature woodchuck his smooth dark gray hairy pate and two bee-like eyes are very like but his broad blunt nose is unlike it seems studded with a row of five or six jewels but these jewels are eyes what extra bounty nature seems to have bestowed upon some of these humble creatures we find our one pair of eyes precious think what three or four pairs would be if they added to our powers of vision proportionately but probably the many-eyed spiders and the flies with their compound eyes see less than we do this multitude of eyes seems only an awkward device of nature's to make up for the movable eye like our own in some of the spiders cocoons under the stones on the tops of the walls you will find masses of small pink eggs expected to survive the winter i suppose and hatch out in the spring the underside of a stone on the top of a stone wall seems like a very cold cradle and nursery but the caterpillars in their shrouds survive here and may not the spiders eggs in october you will find the caterpillars in all stages of making ready for winter they first cover a small space on the stone upon which they rest a very fine silken web it looks like a delicate silver wash this is the foundation of the coming cocoon but i could never catch any of them in the act of weaving their cocoons i brought one to the house and kept it under observation for several days but it was always passive whenever i glimpsed it through the crack between the stones the nights were frosty and the days chilly but sometime during the twenty-four hours the creature's loom was at work one morning a thin veil of delicate silver threads through which i could dimly see the worm united the two stones it seemed to be in the midst of a little thicket of vertical shining silken threads it was like some enchantment a little later the thicket or veil had developed into a thin cradle in which lay the chrysalis and the cast-off skin of the worm this caterpillar had been disturbed a good deal and made to waste some of its precious silk so that its cocoon was finally a thin poor one life under a stone forms a chapter in nature's infinite book of secrecy which most persons skip but which is well worth perusal end of section one recording by edith fern southern california fall two thousand eight